trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Well, if you're looking for a place for some free thinking, come, think freely with me. Now, this doesn't mean that we sit and we argue or just philosophize all day long. It's uh, it's about asking the right questions. It's about questioning the narrative that's being force-fed to us from so many different sources today. And above all, it's about uh, owning our own worldview and trusting ourselves to make the right judgment between truth and error, fact and fiction, and what's real and what's just an illusion. I know it sounds like a lofty ideal, but... Uh, you know, that's that's what I like to do. I feel like this is this is the best use of my time and my talents. And I'm encouraging everybody that I have within earshot, that includes you, question everything. Think about it for yourself. You don't have to agree with me. It's not important. Isn't this weird? This is, you know, the, the, the free thinker worldview is such that it doesn't require everybody else to think the same way that you do. Now, contrast that with some of the other different dogmatic points of view, and it could be the woke ideology. It could even be, you know, some of the really hardcore conservatism. Well, you better agree with America, love it or leave it. It's okay. Reasonable people can disagree on things. Reasonable people can see things from a different vantage point. My goal isn't to have you marching in lockstep with me or chanting in unison with me. It's to simply hopefully add some perspective that maybe you don't already have to whatever your worldview is. And what you do with this information, well, that's entirely up to you. So hopefully that doesn't feel like a finger thumping into your chest. You will agree with everything I say. Because it's just not important that you do. Now, having said that, I thought I could start with a a really, I think, a, a very timely message for anyone who is serious about freedom, whether it's their own freedom or you're standing up for other people's freedom as well. If you're a serious warrior for freedom, I would encourage you to read Dan Sanchez's latest column from the Foundation for Economic Education on calling off the call-out culture war. Now, you know what we're talking about, right? The call-outs? I know, I'm ashamed. I've I've engaged in this too, but it's it's something... the, The point he's trying to make here is the cause of freedom needs educators more than it needs inquisitors. Here's how Dan puts it. He says, you don't hear much about call-out culture anymore. The term has been supplanted by cancel culture. And that's unfortunate because the former is a more fundamental problem to be addressed than the latter. Cancel culture, in other words, is a subset and an outgrowth of call-out culture. So calling out is public shaming to inflict social punishment for non-conforming behavior, especially wrong think, in order to enforce behavioral conformity. And cancellation is just one of the harsher forms of such punishment. Dan says the implicit threat of shaming is disassociation. Fewer friends, fewer fans, followers, customers, job opportunities, business partners, etc. And cancellation is near total disassociation. That is social ostracism. Now he says cancellations are just particularly brutal battles within a broader, constantly raging war of mutual shaming that is pervading our public discourse, especially on the Internet. So to avoid the battles, he says, we must resolve the war. 
Call-out culture is a form of indoctrination, he says, to see why this war is so pernicious and futile. Let's consider a typical example of call-out culture in action. Say a social justice warrior gets wind of someone expressing a heresy against the woke orthodoxy. The social justice warrior publicly calls out the heretic. A woke mob gathers and an online struggle session begins. Now, how might the heretic respond? Well, she might get angry at the attacks and as a result, resentfully cling even more tightly to her heresy. The call-out might backfire or it might succeed. The targeted heretic might get rattled by the denunciations and frightened by the threat of disassociation implicit in those attacks. She doesn't want to lose friends, fans, followers, customers, business partners, etc. So she kowtows, expresses regret, renounces her past heresy, and professes the orthodoxy even to the point of becoming an orthodoxy-enforcing inquisitor herself. And Dan asks, now why would she do that? Well, it's conceivable that the shaming and its implicit threat might have driven her to re-examine her beliefs, which might have led her to accept wokeness in her heart and genuinely repent. But it's much more likely that she's conforming with the orthodoxy primarily for the sake of self-preservation and self-advancement, for preserving and advancing her social standing among the woke set. That was exactly what her inquisitors were probably doing when they called her out in the first place. Virtue signaling for the sake of woke cred. Now, the Inquisitors may congratulate themselves for having taught her a lesson, but that kind of lesson is not true education, but indoctrination. What's the difference? Education is helping someone accept a set of beliefs by helping them understand those beliefs. Indoctrination is, being, is using imposed consequences to induce someone to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. Those imposed consequences may be carrots, like bribes, or sticks, like threats of cancellation. So can you be indoctrinated with the truth? Well, Dan says, call out and cancel culture is often associated with the political left, but he rightly points out many conservatives and libertarians take part in it as well. Some argue that call-out culture is only bad when the values being enforced are bad. That, for example, using shame to enforce woke leftist values is bad, but using shame to enforce conservative and libertarian values is good. Now, he says shame does have a social function, and it can be educational. It can communicate good values in a way that prompts individuals to genuinely question their own errors and vices. But he says in today's culture of online discourse, the deadly sin of wrath too often drives us to overuse and abuse shame. Overdone shame induces not introspection, but terror, not education, but indoctrination. And while it's possible to indoctrinate people into conforming with good values, it's not advisable. Indoctrinated beliefs tend to fall away once the carrots and sticks that prop them up are withdrawn. Moreover, indoctrination is a losing game for proponents of good and true beliefs, and that's because successful indoctrination depends on how effectively and how ruthlessly the Inquisitors wield their carrots and sticks, not on the goodness or truth of the beliefs being indoctrinated. Dan Sanchez says, By participating in the call-out culture war, champions of the good and true are throwing away their single, unique, decisive advantage in the contest of ideas. The winning game for truth and justice is not indoctrination and inquisition, but education. Not merely establishing and enforcing outward conformity, but facilitating genuine understanding and heartfelt conviction. That is the playing field on which goodness 
and truth are the deciding factors. As Leonard Reed wrote, those who favor freedom and virtue must rid ourselves of that troublesome notion which leads many people to conclude that the techniques used by communists, for instance, to destroy a free society can be effectively employed to advance an understanding of freedom. He says the cause of freedom needs educators, not inquisitors. Yeah, I know. My, my conscience was kicking me a couple of times through there as well. I've, I've, I've done it too. But I think Dan is absolutely onto something here that is worth not just considering, but actually understanding and embracing. And I say this as one who was uh, at one time a very unrepentant red meat thrower. I would, I would throw out red meat by the bushel full. And people loved it. I mean, it's, you want to build a large, loyal audience, you give them demons to wrestle with, you throw some red meat out there, yes, you will have a large, loyal audience. But does it really accomplish anything? And by calling out people, yes, you know, it, it generated controversy. And, and, and people loved, you know, to hear a good verbal beatdown. That's one of the reasons I used to love listening to Rush Limbaugh back in the day was, boy, he could, he could put a verbal spanking on somebody like nobody's business. But along the way, I'd like to think I've matured a little bit, and I've come to understand something that Dan clearly grasps here, and that is the way to affect real change lasting change, meaningful change is to inspire people to embrace the truth, not to require them to embrace it or else I'll shame you. I'll make you look foolish. I'll call you names. I'll sit there and make jokes at your expense. No. It's to understand those truths so thoroughly and to live them and to share them in such a way that people will consider them first and foremost and secondly will actually choose to embrace them of their own free will. That's the only way that change ever really takes place. You know, if you beat on someone telling them, you know, you will say the sky is green, you will say the sky is green, you know, they may say the sky is green, but they're only doing it to make the beating stop. It's not because they believe it. You want to persuade somebody to embrace the truth? Use Paul Rosenberg's method. Speak the truth with love, plant the seed, walk away, and give it time to germinate. Give it time to grow. You don't have to win the discussion. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to my sponsors. They include MonticelloCollege.org. If I'm going to tell you their name, I should tell it right. MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCP, that's the Modern Conservative Podcast Nation.com. By the way, if you want to see some really cool swag, click on that uh, TMCP Nation link and uh, go shopping. You'll find hats, T-shirts, lots of other cool swag. And my friend John Harvey, who is the Modern Conservative Podcast host, he'll make it worth your while. He's got a nice free gift and, and free shipping if you spend over 100 bucks. So something to think about there. All right. I mentioned Paul Rosenberg in the last uh, segment, 
And I want to I want to build on mentioning his name. I first of all, before I go another step further, I have to tell you, the debt of gratitude that I owe this man is immense because he is such a, a talented writer and just a, a wonderful persuader. And he's he is to me the epitome of the educator and and freedom warrior that uh, that I aspire to be at some point. When he writes, there's there's just clarity. There's light in what he shares. But there is no sense of, you know, pomposity and I'm so right. See, see how smart I am. Uh, there's a humility that just makes me want to really consider what he has to say. There's a gentleness. And, and above all, I get the sense that he actually cares about the, the audience to whom he's writing. He's not just saying this stuff to show, show off how smart he is. Look at me flexing this big chess club brain for you. No, it's, it's a matter of uh, here is truth, and sometimes it's hard truth. But it's spoken in such a way that I actually am willing to consider it, and, and more often than not, I find out this guy really sees things in a, in a good perspective. I, I can't tell you his exact vantage point. Some people are looking for labels. What is he, conservative, libertarian? What is he? You know, I don't know. To me, Paul defined, defies labels. But whatever his vantage point is, I think he's got a good one. He seems to see things pretty clearly, which is why I want to share with you a very crucial message that he has on central bank digital currencies. I know I talk about that. I'm, I, I, I feel like a little bit like a monetary chicken little and saying, hey, we got to watch out for this. This could be a source of great mischief. And I, I do believe that. But Paul is sounding a warning, and I want to share this with you because I think this is this is a very timely warning as well as a very concrete example of why CBDCs are not in our best interest. He says, again, I'm ringing my alarm bells. This message is for everyone, but he says it's especially for anyone involved with computer programming at all. This is serious. He says, please pay attention. Pass this along. Paul writes, the central banks of the world are serious about central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. And their first big test case has been Nigeria. They thrust this scheme on the Nigerian people in October of 2021, and 99.5% of Nigerians refused to play. Well, now the overlords have doubled down and are removing cash, as in refusing to print it. And the result is a massive cash shortage. Their close your ears, it's safer not to think, Gambit, is some sort of anti-corruption malarkey. Now, for those unfamiliar, a CBDC gives your ruler 100% control over your life and death. They wouldn't need a law or even a policeman to kill you. You just couldn't buy or sell anything. More than that, they could instantly and with programmed responses rather than human choices, penalize or flatly cut off any friend or neighbor who helped you. He says, please understand, CBDCs do everything that was done to the Canadian truckers times a large number. These things correspond directly to the mark of the beast in Revelation. Even if you think the Bible is foolishness, there's no doubt that whoever wrote Revelation was a terribly imaginative person, and this was the most powerful dystopian scenario they could imagine. And so Paul Rosenberg says we cannot go along with this, and we most certainly cannot build it. No paycheck could possibly be good enough. So he says, those of you who pray, pray for the Nigerians. Those of you working on Bitcoin's Lightning Network in any fashion, please grasp the stupendous importance of what you're doing. 
this is serious, and it just got very serious for millions of Nigerians. Now, I don't share this with you because I think, hey, you know, you need a good scare today. That gave you goosebumps? That's not my goal here. I think his warning, particularly when he talks about, you think about what was being done to the Canadian truckers just a year ago. Can you believe it's been a year? Look at how their bank accounts were seized. Their, the, even the donations to help them were canceled, confiscated, because the powers that be had access and in many cases control over the monetary systems through which that money was changing hands. CBDCs will do all of that many, many times over. That's why we cannot afford to allow something like that to be imposed on us. And I don't think we're going to be given a choice. I don't think we're going to be given an up or down vote. Hey, you want this? Yes? No? It's just going to be like you are going to do this because this is what's right for you and everybody else. And you're going to see the systems around us most likely embrace them. Which means you and I have some pretty difficult choices to make at this point. I mean, there, there are places where I'm willing to adapt. Uh, you know, I pay my taxes so I don't have to sit in jail trying to do this radio show or this podcast. I, I don't know how a person is going to be able to completely avoid that system. And I may be wrong. I have to allow for the possibility. My limited understanding may be leading me to, to a place where I'm not seeing something that, that would, uh, would complete the puzzle. But I think we're going to be forced to make a choice that is going to put uh, those of us who do not want to be part of those central bank digital currencies on the outside of society. We are going to be marginalized in ways that you think the unvaccinated were marginalized. You can't come in here. You can't eat here. You can't see a show here. You can't fly there. You can't travel with this. You can't shop here because you're not wearing a mask or you don't have the vaccine passport. Uh, Do you think that was bad? This is many, many times more worse. (laughs) Much worse, in fact. We better have some backup systems in place. We better have networks of our own. By the way, I did hear an interview, and in fact, I I think I'm going to reach out and contact this young man. His name is Philip. Uh, He works down in in Utah, putting together a network of like-minded people who can come together on issues like this that matter and support one another in ways that they don't have to bend the knee to a system that is intent on enslaving them. Now, that sounds really radical. Oh, my gosh, what are they trying to do? Create some kind of cult or something? I'm sure it will be portrayed as such, you know, by by legacy media and so forth. But in reality, it's just people honestly looking for ways to avoid finding themselves in a financial straitjacket that forces them to do the bidding of whomever is in power at the moment. And most people, this is the sad truth, most people are going to go along because it's simply easier. They're just going to say, well, how do I feed my family? How do I, you know, how do I continue to keep a job? How do I keep a roof over my head? We're being backed into a corner. And it's it's not pretty. And I think that uh, the, there's a very good possibility that the people who are most intent on remaining free are going to be forced to give up a lot of material comfort and convenience for the sake of remaining free. Now, I can't tell you, is it, is it going to be worth it? I can only tell you that uh, I'm willing to experience a pretty fair amount of discomfort and inconvenience in order to be able to maintain control of my own life. 
But this is upping the ante. I mean, this is like literally, you will starve if you do not take the mark, so to speak. That's why I think Paul is right in comparing this to the mark of the beast. We live in very serious times. I don't tell you this to scare you. You probably have figured it out for yourself, or at least maybe you feel it in your gut. Yeah, things are getting serious. Well, the time for pass or play is quickly approaching. And if you wait until it's on your doorstep, you've waited too long. The time for decision is going to be forced on you, and more than likely you will go along to get along. If you're intent on remaining free, if you're intent on maintaining your own sovereignty, you better have some uh, plan B in place. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Well, I uh, saw the news story earlier this week. Uh, Apparently someone uh, went on a shooting spree on a campus in Michigan. I don't remember what the final body count was. There were several people wounded. At least three people died, I believe, including the uh, shooter himself. And, of course, the predictable calls for, why is this happening? Why aren't we enacting more gun control? As if... That would have stopped someone with murder in his heart from carrying out, you know, a killing spree. Somehow, I've been following this for years and years, and I know I'm I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but, you know, there there are people who just have this firmly in their heads that, well, if only we can restrict the law-abiding people enough, we can prevent anything like this from ever happening again. You can't. Preventive law can only take freedom from people who have done no wrong, What you need is you need protective law. And protective law would be things like, oh, I don't know, stop creating gun-free zones where you criminalize a law-abiding person's possession of a life-saving tool. Because it's interesting how many of these uh, so-called mass shootings take place in gun-free zones. Got a great article here from uh, Dee Parker. Dee Parker's a regular contributor to AmericanThinker.com. This is from uh, Parker's Substack parkerd.substack.com. It's finally dawning on the New York Times that gun-free zones don't work. We need to forget the idea that disarming the innocent will protect them. D. Parker says, even the media can't ignore the cold, hard reality that depriving people of their common-sense civil rights doesn't protect them. If you look closely enough, the media are making some stunning admissions. A recent New York Times article all but conceded that gun-free zones don't work. A newspaper in Raleigh, North Carolina, asked a question that destroyed the central tenet of gun control. The piece in the New York Times detailed the creation of a gun-free zone in Times Square, accompanied by an increased police presence and the requisite gun-free zone signs. While the increased police presence helped reduce crime, it continued. The signs did nothing to stop criminals from carrying guns. And the shootings continued. Here's a quote from the article. People feel emboldened to carry guns on the street, said Tom Harris, a retired New York police inspector and president of the Times Square Alliance, which promotes businesses and coordinates major events. A gun-free zone is not going to stop a criminal from carrying a gun, Mr. Harris said. Now, anyone with a logical mind could have made the point that a gun-free zone only deprives the innocent 
of their means of self-defense, giving criminals and government free reign. Except that the far left tends to not distinguish between innocent people and criminals. Leftists tend to lump them together and look at aggregate statistics on guns with the simplistic notion that more guns equals more death and fewer guns equals fewer deaths without any thought on who has them. Those who put some intellectual effort into understanding this issue realize there is a vast difference between innocent people and criminals being armed. But that would require a thoughtful instead of an emotional assessment of the situation. Doing that destroys any reasons for gun control. Now, an article a while back in the Raleigh News and Observer posed an interesting question. Unintentionally opening up the discussion and intellectually destroying the rationale behind gun-free zones. In a piece on, a, on the issue of legislation that would let people with concealed carry permits have a gun on school property after hours if the property was being used for religious services. They asked, how do church congregations protect themselves without guns? They offered a choice between protecting the congregation with those with concealed carry permits or hiring off-duty police officers. What they didn't realize is they were acknowledging that armed self-defense is the only option. Whether hired professionals or not, this essentially destroys the silly notion of the gun-free zone. Dee Parker says this leads us back to the New York Times piece, since that's a similar situation. The Times is tacitly repudiating its silly notions of gun-free zones and gun control. The bottom line in all of this is that we need to forget the idea that disarming the innocent will protect them. We've seen this time and again that this does not work. So much so that even the New York Times almost figured this out. Now, I know, guns are not for everybody. And I would not insist that somebody who has an aversion to firearms, or for that matter, it may just be an aversion to, look, I don't think I could ever harm another person. I get that. I believe there is such a thing as a conscientious objector. I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm sorry, maybe it's because I, I watched Hacksaw Ridge with my son here not too long ago. And, you know, Desmond Doss, you know, one of the most uh, decorated heroes of World War II, wouldn't carry a gun. He wanted to be a medic. He wanted to, to help people. So I understand where they're coming from. But there are those, and I include myself in this crowd, who accept the responsibility of, look, if it comes to protecting what's near and dear to me, I feel like that responsibility falls primarily on my own shoulders, first and foremost. It's not something I'm willing to outsource to whatever professionals may be willing to, you know, either show up uh, after a 911 call or, you know, that we could hire out that security to. Now, if someday when I'm worth millions and millions of dollars, maybe I will hire armed security to accompany me and, you know, be part of my entourage. But I doubt it. First of all, I doubt that I'll be you know, rolling in millions and millions of dollars, but that's beside the point. I take it seriously because the truth is you don't know when or where something can happen. And that's not paranoia. That's simply an acknowledgement that, yes, it's a tiny percentage of people out there who are truly sociopathic or psychopathic in their behavior. And you don't know when you may encounter one of those people. And so having skill at arms is one way to mitigate the likelihood that uh, you, you encounter with one of those rare examples of sociopathy or psychopathy, you know, ending up with, with you or your loved ones being victimized or, you know, perhaps brutalized or even murdered. Now, I don't say this lightly. 
And it's it's interesting because um, I've taken very seriously for at least the last 20 some years, I have uh, taken every opportunity to get the best firearms training I can painfully afford. And it's expensive. It is not, uh, it's not an inexpensive hobby. It's expensive to get good quality training. But when you are training, you're being trained and, and you're learning the, the skill at arms, you're not just training yourself, well, this is how you shoot a gun and this is how you, you reload it. This is how you clear malfunctions and that. That's part of the training. But the biggest part of the training is training your mindset to know when that line in the sand is being crossed and when it is appropriate to use lethal force. And the cool thing about this, and I say the cool thing because I didn't really expect this, but the more training that I have received, the more respect I find for human life. In other words, it doesn't make you into a Rambo wannabe. You're not packing because you're looking for an excuse to go out there and show off your gunslinger skills. If anything, you grasp the responsibility, the weight of responsibility and stewardship that you carry with you when you carry the power of life or death with you. You're not looking for an excuse to use it any more than a person who buys a fire extinguisher is crossing their fingers and hoping and praying that something will catch fire so they have an excuse to use the thing. I think training is what will help most people understand, first of all, they can be trusted to make these kinds of decisions. But secondly, they also understand that in their moment of need, you cannot teleport an armed police officer. In fact, I'm going to qualify a competent armed police officer to your side with a simple phone call. When that need is upon you, the need to act is right there where you are and the authority to act needs to be with you as well. And again, I understand some people don't want to accept that. That's okay. For those of us who do, though, we need to be prepared, we need to be trained, and we need to be responsible kind of citizens who can be trusted to make the right choice. I see the gun-free zone signs. I see them, you know, even even in Idaho, where I live, there's, you know, it's, it's a pretty red state, but there are a number of places you go and there's no weapons whatsoever allowed. And I don't mean to sound like a scofflaw here, but when I see those signs, my first reaction is, huh, I wonder who that sign's for as I walk right past it. I know people mean well. Well, we're just trying to protect everybody, but no, you're not. If you're trying to deprive people the ability to protect their lives and the lives of the people around them, you're not helping them. You're trying to manage them, trying to micromanage them. Let those who want to accept the responsibility accept it. The thing that I think a lot of people miss is when concealed carry is done properly, it protects everybody, not just the person who is carrying a concealed firearm. And the reason it protects everybody is because criminals or people who are intent on doing harm to other people, they never know. There is always going to be a question in the back of their minds, is somebody here going to be able to stop me? Now, if they're standing in the midst of a whole bunch of gun-free zone signs, the odds are in their favor because most people are going to obey those signs. Rather than encouraging everybody to be scofflaws like me, I say, take down the signs and leave those criminals guessing. It should be dangerous to be a criminal. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'd like to invite you to consider doing so. It's a very simple process. It only requires about $500, a background check, and about three days of your time. Okay, I'm kidding. No, all it requires is an email address. Go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com. Click on the show notes at the bottom of the page. is a subscribe button. Click that button. It'll ask for your email, and that's it. I'm not going to spam you. I will drop a copy of my show notes into your inbox each day that I do the show, and even days where my voice may have taken the day off, I will still publish the show notes so that you can have some interesting reading material. But that's it. I don't share, I don't sell, I don't uh, trade your email with anybody else. It stays between you and me. Okay, a couple quick stories here to share in this final segment. Um, this one, I, I know I was talking about throwing red meat, and, and I worry that this is going to perceived as, oh, here comes some red meat, but I'm actually very impressed with what some parents in Idaho did to, uh, to force some of the activists who are, are, are sponsoring and promoting these uh, drag queen uh, you know, shows and drag queen story hours, you know, they, they actually had a very nice counter to this. This is a story from AmericanThinker.com. Olivia Murray is the author. And uh, now, I'll grant you, Olivia's using some pretty, some pretty uh, pejorative language here. But I want you to hear how the story went down. She says, gender-bending sex pests running around under the cover of the LGBTQ umbrella are terrorists in the fullest sense of the word. They're hypersexualized and mentally ill adults demanding unrestrained access to children, even those still in infancy. And she says negotiation is not a viable solution. In fact, protective parents in southeastern Idaho just handed pro-family Americans the blueprint on a silver platter, showing us exactly how to handle these degenerates. Go on the offense and refuse to back down. Interestingly enough, she says the town is Pocatello, and she actually attended the local university for a bit. So here's the story of what happened. This was first reported by Mass Resistance. On January 17th, a group of parents attended a library board meeting and read from obscene books. But they were ignored. One board member continued to not deny that there was any obscene material in the library. So several parents decided to attend the Marshall Library's Drag Queen Story Hour held on January 21st. What they saw was ghastly. It was an attempt to normalize homosexuality and transgenderism in the minds of very young children. Well, in the aftermath of that uh, that event, the parents regrouped, and just five days back, in just five days back on February 11th, they took the terrorists by surprise and secured an impressive victory, one that Americans across the nation ought to emulate. Initially, these parents had planned to sing hymns in the library of the lobby, but when they arrived just a scant 30 minutes early with Bibles in hand, they were the first ones there. God bless the Judeo-Christian ethos embraced by conservatives, which values punctuality. So they went in and they occupied the designated meeting room. Per mass resistance, the library director attempted to suppress the activists, but they weren't budging, so he gave up. But here's the best part. As the event was about to begin, the director came back and asked some of the activists to give up their seats so that the parents with children in the lobby could come inside. Not one of the activists budged. 
There were several children who had been brought to this drag queen story hour event, but none of them could get in. There was no room, no seats left. So the drag queens read the LGBT children's books and sang songs, but they ended it early and left. Now, we're told the movement isn't about sexualizing children, but about inclusivity and gender expression. Yet, these activists shut it down early when they concede that they've lost their audience of children. That right there affirms what people have been saying all along. And this is peaceful disobedience at its finest. I got to admit, that's, that's a pretty clever way to make the point. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's not something you'd be willing to... I don't know. You know, sure, as I show up for Drag Queen Story Hour, somebody would take a picture and, hey, is that, is that Hyde? What's he doing sitting there at Drag Queen Story Hour? But I love the idea of enough parents coming in, taking up the seats. Sorry, there's just no room for the kids here. But I do agree with Olivia's uh, point. Isn't it telling? That when they were denied an audience of children, eventually the drag queens packed it up and, okay, we'll take our show and go elsewhere. Why must they have an audience of children? You're not going to hear people questioning this in the legacy media. But I think those who are making a peaceful, albeit disobedient stand, I think they're doing the right thing. We've got to draw a line somewhere. Those boundaries have to be enforced around our kids at some point. I mean, what's the alternative? If a guy in lingerie wants to spend time with my kids, am I duty-bound because I'm a good person to let him do so? My answer is not only no, it's hell no. All right, moving on. You've heard the story of Jack Phillips, right? The owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Denver. And the state of Colorado has been relentlessly waging a war against him for 10 years now. This is where we get the phrase, bake the cake. After he was accused of violating the uh, discrimination, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act and accused of doing so by not baking a cake for a homosexual couple because based on his religious beliefs, he did not want to create a cake for their wedding. It, 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 he just said, this is not a good use of my God-given talents. I'll sell you anything in the shop I've already made, but... I'm not going to make a cake just for your wedding. Now, he also is, is facing another, uh, another charge. This time, uh, it's, it's a, a trans woman having a gender transition cake, pink on the inside, blue on the outside, to celebrate his birthday and the seventh anniversary of his gender transition. And Philip said, nope, I won't be doing that either. So now he's uh, facing another court case. Now, this has been, actually, the, the first case, I believe, was overturned on a very narrow decision by the Supreme Court that was upholding religious liberty. And what I'm going to share with you, this is from, uh, from Lawrence Vance, is going to maybe rub some people the wrong way, but I do think he has the correct take here. This is not so much about free speech, and it is not even so much about freedom of religion. This is about private property rights. And this is something that Lawrence Vance explains very, very well. He says, the First Amendment reads as follows. This is the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So in other words, 
The First Amendment grants no rights. Instead, it prohibits Congress from interfering with freedom of speech and the free exercise of one's religion. So the first problem is that decorating a cake or not decorating a cake has nothing to do with freedom of speech. Government decrees and Supreme Court rulings have made unwarranted speech distinctions because they misconstrue the nature of the First Amendment. Cake decorating is not a form of free speech. The ability to speak is not a prerequisite to being able to decorate a cake. A deaf mute can decorate your cake. He says the second problem is that decorating a cake or not decorating a cake has nothing to do with freedom of religion. Once again, government decrees and Supreme Court rulings have mandated or permitted, depending on the circumstances, businesses to grant or receive religious accommodations. But if something should be illegal, then it shouldn't be legal just because someone says he's exercising his religion. So here's his point. In a free society, every business should have the right to refuse service to any individual, to any group, on any basis, and for any reason. Speech has nothing to do with it. Religion has nothing to do with it. Freedom of conscience and property rights have everything to do with it. So homosexual and transgendered couples have the right to discriminate legally against any bakery that is owned by a Christian. The libertarian position on discrimination is simply this. Since discrimination of any kind is not aggression, force, coercion, threat, or violence, the government should never prohibit it, seek to prevent it, or punish anyone for doing it. Freedom of speech and religion have nothing to do with it. Anti-discrimination laws are an attack on property rights, freedom of association, the free market, and freedom of thought. I understand that runs contrary to what a lot of us have been taught. Well, if you open a business, though, you have to accommodate the public. No, you don't. Not in a free world, you don't. You can discriminate against customers for any reason, no matter how valid, no matter how stupid. If it's your property, you should not be forced to conduct business with someone you don't want to conduct business with. And only a thug would bring the state into that situation to make you bake the cake. After all... In a free market, they are free to take their business elsewhere. They are free to reward someone who is willing to transact with them. Yeah, I don't have a lot of time to go into great detail here, but freedom of association and property rights matter much more than we think. You ought to check out the article. It's in today's show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.